Some of you, as we sang that hymn about the resurrection, might have been wondering if we were confused about what season it was in and what holiday we were celebrating. But as you will see from our passage this morning, the sermon passage, that it is all about the resurrection. And so I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 22. And we will be considering this morning verses 23 to 33. Again, our sermon text this morning is Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 to 33. This is God's Word. Listen to it carefully. The same day, Sadducees came to Him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked Him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at His teaching. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this feast that you have laid before us. We pray, O Lord, that you would feed us from your word this morning. Give us wisdom, O Lord. Help us to better understand the resurrection both of Jesus Christ, most importantly of Jesus Christ, but also, O Lord, the resurrection of all his people. We pray, dear Lord, that you would give us insight into your word by your spirit that you would guide us, and that you would sanctify us by your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you probably recognize some similarities with uh, this passage and last week's passage. Just as in last week's passage with the Pharisees and the Herodians who uh, tried to entrap Jesus by asking him whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, now the Sadducees... The Sadducees come to him with their own trick question, their own desire to entrap him. As the passage says, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Now, I don't think any of you doubt the word of God, but in case you need some outside verification, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus wrote, the Sadducees hold that the soul perishes along with the body. So it wasn't even that the Sadducees held uh, that there was an afterlife. It wasn't even that they held that the soul lived on, disembodied. They didn't believe in an afterlife for the soul either. The whole scenario that these men laid out before Jesus wasn't one about which they were concerned at all. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Why were they bothering to ask Jesus this lengthy question? Well, it's because they were arrogantly looking to belittle the faith, the belief in the resurrection. If, as the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection, then not even Christ, not even Jesus himself, will be raised. 
And so this has deep implications for us as we consider the death but also the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be considering in a, in a few months' time as we get to that, uh, those passages in Scripture at the end of Matthew. Well, this is now the fifth group that has approached Jesus since he arrived in the temple earlier in the day. It's the fifth group of people who have come up to challenge him. It's almost as if Jesus is in a receiving line after a wedding, except that rather than people coming up and congratulating uh, him, they're challenging him, they're belittling him, they're hoping to catch him in hypocrisy or in some sort of mistake to try to point out that he isn't who he truly is. We need to note that the other Gospels don't have this account of the Sadducees approaching Jesus in the temple. And so uh, we, it, it helps us to, uh, we at least have to ask the question, why did uh, the Spirit guide Matthew to place this here when none of the other Gospels have it? Well, when we read it here, when we read over this challenge of the Sadducees, at the very least, it gives us a sense of the forces that have been arrayed against Jesus at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry. And these forces especially after this particular encounter. These forces are going to bear full weight upon Jesus. They're going to seek him out, and they're going to try to destroy him. And in just a few chapters' time, that will indeed happen. These forces that are at play right now, and that we've been reading about for the last several weeks, between the Herodians and the Pharisees and the chief priests and the elders of the people, these forces, their desire will end in Jesus Christ being crucified, nailed to a cross, And so at the very least, Matthew includes it here to give us that picture of the odds that Jesus was facing. Each of these groups has come to entrap Jesus. And so they've come armed with questions designed to trip him up. They want to catch him in hypocrisy. They want to show him to be a fraud. But just like the others who have challenged Jesus, the Sadducees will receive more than they bargained for in the answer that they get from Jesus. As we work our way through these verses this morning, I'd ask you to consider this thought, that the resurrection of the dead is taught in both the Old and New Testaments, but it is based upon Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead is taught in both the Old and New Testaments, but it is based, it finds its ground, its foundation in Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. And so all other resurrections in Scripture are a foreshadowing of the great resurrection of Jesus Christ and all of the resurrections that happen after. The great general resurrection at the end of time when Jesus returns, it's an aftershadow. It's a result of Jesus' resurrection. We've divided this passage into three sections. The first, the question, verses 23 to 28. And the second, the answer to the question they asked, verses 29 and 30. And then finally, the answer to the question they didn't ask, verses 31 to 33. The question, verses 23 to 28. The answer to the question they asked, verses 29 and 30. And then the answer to the question they didn't ask, verses 31 to 33. So let's look first at the question, these first uh, five verses, 23 to 28. Verse 23 tells us that the Sadducees approached Jesus on the same day that the Pharisees and the Herodians had approached him, as well as the chief priests and elders. The same day after Jesus had walked into Jerusalem, he'd cursed the fig tree and he'd made his way on into the temple. This is right in the middle of the Passover week, just a couple of days before Jesus will be nailed to the cross. Now we're told in verse 23 that the Sadducees believe that there is no resurrection. 
And this is an editorial comment. It was put there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it's designed to let the the reader know. It's designed to let us know that the Sadducees are up to no good here. It's a foreshadowing. We know that they're being insincere from the very beginning, before they even ask their question, before they even set it up. And so with this knowledge about the Sadducees, verse 24 begins to set up uh, their question, which finally comes in verse 28. Well, the Sadducees begin by quoting Deuteronomy 25.5, which starts a section of laws uh, concerning leveret uh, marriage. You can read that section there in Deuteronomy 25.5. You've probably seen it before. The law concerning leveret marriage is stated that if a man dies and leaves a wife who is childless, the brother of the man should marry her, and the first son born uh, from that union would be the heir to the first man, the, the deceased man, uh, himself, He would be that heir. He would carry on that man's line. God instituted this in his word. He gave Israel this law in order to keep uh, the line from dying out. He was interested in perpetuating and propagating the race, his people. And we encountered this law put into action two years ago when we went through the book of Ruth. We saw what happened there. That this kinsman of Naomi, the only kinsman who was willing to do it, there was one other who refused, he took Ruth uh, as his wife because she'd been married uh, to his own kinsman. And out of that union, out of that marriage, uh, uh, came uh, the birth of Obed, who was the great-grandfather of King David. Now, the scenario that the Sadducees present to Jesus, it's a hypothetical one. How many, how can you imagine, can you imagine Uh, A woman being married seven different times, all of her husbands dying before her, none of them producing uh, a son. But it might have have had some merit if it was coming from anybody else but the Sadducees. If it came from anyone else who actually believed in a resurrection, we could give it some weight. And so in one sense, the Leveret uh, marriage laws did raise some questions about life in the resurrection, about life in heaven, the afterlife. And so in verses 25 to 27, the Sadducees, they give this example of the seven brothers. The first of whom dies, he marries, he dies, he leaves no children. And so each of these six brothers marries in turn this widow, none of them producing a son. She's a widow seven times over before she dies. And then uh, this wife, this widow, finally dies. And the Sadducees finally get to their question in verse 28. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had, they all had her. Now, as we said, in one sense, this is a fair question to be asked. Because without knowing that there is no marriage in the resurrection, as Jesus instructs in verse 30, there would be a question of which husband would be her husband for eternity. But because of who is asking the question, it isn't a fair question. The Sadducees didn't care about Jesus' thought on the matter. They didn't didn't care what he thought. They simply wanted to ridicule his belief in the afterlife by arguing that if the resurrection were true, it would result in absurd consequences. Like a woman having seven husbands in the afterlife. Can you imagine the disharmony and the discord in heaven? And so therefore they argue, based on this absurd conclusion uh, to this scenario that they've set up, they argue that there must be no resurrection of the dead. 
The Sadducees are arguing that the belief in the resurrection is absurd because there would be absurd consequences in the afterlife. But they're arguing not from any scriptural basis. They don't have any scriptural proof text about marriages enduring beyond death. They're arguing from a lack of belief in the resurrection itself. If you don't believe in the resurrection, sure, you can concoct any kind of scenario you want about it. And it is a lack of belief that Jesus very shortly will deal with. Let's turn now and look at uh, this answer that Jesus gives to the question they asked, verses 29 and 30. In the next two verses, Jesus will deal with the question that they had asked. And then in the last two verses, the last three verses, he will deal with their unbelief in the resurrection. In verse 29, Jesus says to them, You are wrong. <laughs> Very bluntly, you are wrong because you, do not, you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now, we need to uh, realize this about the Sadducees. Some of you may be aware of this. The Sadducees only held that the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, only those first five books were authoritative for them. That was their authority. That was their Bible. The rest of it, maybe they uh, looked at it, maybe they knew it, uh, but they didn't regard it as authoritative in their lives. Only the books of the law, the books of Moses. But as Jesus shows, they're deficient even in their understanding of these five books. If it's difficult to understand the whole Bible, or if it's difficult to understand the whole of the Old Testament, it ought to be easy to understand and to know the first five books of the Bible, at least, if they narrowed it down to this small uh, uh, amount of the Bible, of God's Word, then they ought to know it thoroughly. But Jesus shows that they don't know it. They don't know it at all. And so verse 29, it serves to lead into Jesus' discussion of the resurrection in verses 31 and 32. You don't know your scriptures and you don't know the power of God. The Old Testament teaches about life after death. Even in the Pentateuch, even in those first five books. Though much of it can be found, much of this teaching is found in the Psalms, in the Prophets, in the book of Job. It's there in the Pentateuch as well. But there isn't, however, much teaching in the Old Testament on the status of marriage after death. And even though they didn't believe in the resurrection, the Sadducees assumed that if there was uh, this theoretical, this hypothetical afterlife, it would be subject to the same conditions of life here on earth. They were assuming that the one was the same as the other. But as God makes very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 50, there are great, huge differences between heaven and earth. And these differences demand a radically different kind of body. There's a radically different heavenly body that we will have than we have now here on earth. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 42 to 44 says this, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You see the differences even in the way that Paul differentiates. He categorizes these two places very differently. The bodies will have. And so it's not safe to assume that the conditions will be the same. These differences, these differences between human bodies and glorified ones have implication for marriages. They show the radically different state of existence that we will enjoy in heaven. 
And so Jesus informs the Sadducees in verse 30, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now Jesus does not say here that when people die they, be, they become angels in heaven. That's a, a misconception that many Christians hold to. We don't become angels in heaven. We remain human, even though we will be transformed. He says that humans are like angels. They're like angels in heaven. Just as angels are not married, neither will humans be married in heaven. And what we can see from this example that the Sadducees use, this example of of leveret marriage, even that gives the proof that there won't be marriage in heaven. God has made a provision for his people. He's made a provision that family lines will not die out. And so he said when one brother dies, if his, if his wife has no children, has no male heir uh, to assume the fam- family line, the brother must marry her. The line must be continued. God would not have instituted this law of leveret marriage if it would bring confusion in the afterlife. It would add to confusion in heaven. There will be no confusion in heaven. There will be no competition between spouses God would not have commanded this if it would lead to those kinds of consequences in heaven. The primary difference in the relationship between husband and wife on earth and in heaven is that in the new, uh, this new deathless life, there will be no place for procreation. There will be no having of children in heaven. There will be no need to. We'll live forever. The birth of children... Is a way to build up the race. It was commanded in Scripture in the garden before the fall, and so it's not a result of the fall. Adam and Eve were to build a holy seed. They were to, to, to uh, 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 be fruitful and multiply, was what God commanded them in Genesis. And yet at some point, had they not fallen into sin, had they completed this probationary period successfully, had they not eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, They would have had no need to continue bearing children. The number would have been reached, whatever number that was, whatever number that is. The exclusive relationship in which procreation properly takes place on earth, marriage, will not be necessary in heaven. There will be no need to carry on the family line in heaven because people will live forever. Now, it is very difficult for us to imagine that our relationships will be any different in heaven than they are on earth. But the relationships we have in the resurrection will be based on pure love instead of emotional or physical need. Pure love. There won't be the need that we feel on earth. And as we've already noticed, despite the Sadducees' uh, insincerity in asking the question, it does raise practical issues for anyone who has been married more than once, whether because of, of death of a spouse or because of divorce. And so in the words of one commentator, Jesus' reply points them to the possibility, a possibility of fulfillment of these relationships in the risen life, which the exclusiveness of the marriage bond and earthly life would have rendered unthinkable. There will be relationships. These relationships will continue in one form, in a different form, in a perfected form. And what Jesus is saying, it makes possible what we cannot conceive of on earth, that there would be harmony between those who believe in Christ, even when a divorce has taken place, that there would be harmony in heaven. 
And so the brokenness of relationships, while it may not be referred to as marriage, the brokenness of relationships on earth will be restored in heaven among believers. We will have relationships with our loved ones in heaven. We will. But those relationships which on earth were at best imperfect and at worst dysfunctional will be perfected in heaven. Now we've all been to funerals where the focus is solely on that reunion that's going to take place between the deceased and his family members who have gone on before him. We've all been to those kinds of things without reference to Jesus Christ, without reference to seeing him face to face. But we can't let our reaction against that kind of a funeral service uh, make us think that there will be no reunion in heaven. There will be. The Dutch theologian Herman, Herman Bavink wrote, the hope of reunion on the other side of the grave that we all have. He says it is completely natural. It is genuinely human and also in keeping with Scripture. Regeneration does not erase individuality. It does not erase personality or character, but it sanctifies it and puts it at the service of God's name. The joy of heaven, to be sure, first of all, it primarily consists in communion with Christ. That is our ultimate desire. Paul says, I desire to go and be with Christ. But further, in the, in the fellowship of the blessed among themselves as well. And here, uh, Bavink gives as an example Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, where Jesus says, There many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And then Bavink continues on, The hope of reunion is not bad in itself. Therefore, as long as it remains subordinate to the desire for fellowship with Christ, your beloved uh, uh, relatives, your beloved friends who know the Lord Jesus and have gone on before you, you will see them. You will recognize them just as surely as you'll recognize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you will recline with them at table and fellowship with them at the heavenly banquet, the wedding banquet of the Lamb. But the Lamb will be your focus. The Lamb will be your desire. Our primary desire will be to see Jesus face to face. But there will be a reunion between friends and family. But there, rather than dysfunctional uh, relationships between members of a family, rather than imperfect relationships, for those who believe and those who go on to be with the Lord, it will be perfect. It will be without conflict. It will be unimaginable to those of us who have experienced conflict over the dinner table at Thanksgiving this past week. And yet it happens. This is human relationship in a perfected state. And it will be beautiful. And it's the longing of our hearts. And that's why we long for our loved ones to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look now at verses 31 to 33, the answer to the question they didn't ask. As interesting as the subject of marriage and the resurrection life is, as interesting as it is to us and all of its implications uh, for us, this wasn't the primary issue that was being battled over in the exchange between the Sadducees and Jesus. The real issue, the base issue here, the presenting uh, issue was different than the base issue, the true issue, and that is the truth of the resurrection and the Sadducees' denial of it. In denying the resurrection, they denied the entire purpose for Jesus coming in the first place. 
His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. And so in order for them to understand what Jesus came for, in order for them to truly believe, Jesus has got a reason with them and help them to understand the truth of the resurrection. He dealt with their surface question. Now he's dealing with the, the deeper issue, the true issue. Now, as we noted earlier, the Sadducees only regarded the first five books of the Bible as authoritative. So what does Jesus do? When he quotes Scripture, he goes straight to Exodus, the second book of the first five. He makes his argument there. In verses 31 to 32, he says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, so he's changing the topic back to the real issue. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Jacob uh, and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now Jesus here is quoting from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. This is where Moses first encounters God uh, in this bush that is, it is burning, but it's not being consumed by the fire. God is introducing himself to Moses. It's as if Moses never knew him before this point. And so God introduces himself to Moses after hundreds and hundreds of years. Years and years after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are dead. Years and years after Joseph had died. God is introducing himself. To Moses. And they had long been dead, these men, these patriarchs. But God says, I am the God. I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He is their God right now, is what he's telling Moses. Not uh, God of them some uh, time past before they died. He continues to be their God to this very day, to our day. Because they live on to this very day. And so here, in a very simple way, using their own authority, using the scriptures that they consider to be uh, the true scripture, Jesus proved the resurrection to the Sadducees. And so it's no wonder that verse 33 says that the crowds went away from there and they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. And we find out in in the next section that he had silenced the Pharisees with his answer. But there are other passages in the Old Testament that point to life after physical death, even if they aren't in the books of Moses. You find them in the Psalms. One example is Psalm 49, which is in large part a psalm about death. Verse 10 says, For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Verse 14 of Psalm 49 says, Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol, with no place to dwell. But then the psalmist says this in verse 15 of Psalm 49, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So there you have it. There are other psalms we could go to, but that's a good example from the book of Psalms. Uh, Going to Job. Job 19, verses 25 to 27, says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Well, this passage was read at the funeral yesterday of our brother John Kolajachuk. And it applied. It was the words that John could have spoken himself as he struggled through cancer in those last weeks. I shall see for myself. My eyes will behold this Redeemer, and not another. 
Well, finally, looking at the prophets for another example of uh, a talk about the afterlife, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, these aren't passages from the Pentateuch. They're not those passages from the first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus doesn't go to them as he could have with another group. But they're just as authoritative. And they give us a, a better picture of the Old Testament understanding of the afterlife. They help us to understand more fully. But we have to see that really it's still types and shadows in the Old Testament. The understanding of, of the afterlife, the understanding of the resurrection life, if you want to put it that way, is not clear. And it's not nearly as cle- clearly presented as it is in the New Testament. But we have to maintain here. And this is why the New Testament gives the fullest picture of the resurrection. We must maintain that the discussion of resurrection must be uh, primarily, it must find its primary reference in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Any discussion of the resurrection, whether it's our own, whether it's Old Testament believers, whether it's Lazarus, any discussion has its foundation point, its reference point in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every other resurrection is based in His Jesus is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is first and foremost the resurrected one. And anyone, anyone else, we ourselves included, are secondary to Christ in the resurrection. To deny the resurrection is to deny Jesus' own resurrection. To say that you won't be resurrected. To say that all there is is, is life and then the grave and that's it and we're done. It's to deny Jesus' own resurrection. And if he can't be raised, we have no hope. I think it was Michael Horton who has said that the resurrection is the one fact of Christianity that if somehow it could be proven wrong, and there are many who have tried, and there are many who will continue to try to prove the resurrection wrong, if it could somehow be proven wrong, it would completely discredit Christianity. If it can be proven wrong without a shadow of a doubt, then you and I are best going on with our lives and walking away from the church. But it can't be proven wrong. There were dozens of witnesses who saw the empty grave. There were hundreds of people who saw the risen Lord. Eyewitnesses to the fact of the resurrection. It cannot be proven wrong. Well, that is what Paul is saying in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says in verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Christ's resurrection from the dead is proof that if you believe in him, your sins will be forgiven. It is proof that he was no ordinary man, as many like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and many still today have claimed. It is proof His resurrection is proof that He is the Son of God. It is proof of the power of of God, uh, which Jesus says the Sadducees do not know. They do not understand. It is proof. But it is also proof of the grace of God. Because it is proof that Jesus really did what Scripture says He came to do. He came to save His people from their sins. It proves to us that God is good and gracious, and He will save. He will save everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. 
He will do it. He is willing to do it. He is able to do it. And nothing will stop him from saving his people to the uttermost. You can't stop him. I can't stop him. He will save his own. God is a gracious God. He decreed his plan of salvation before the foundations of the earth were laid. And he carried his plan out through the death and the resurrection of his son. We didn't ask for God to do this for us. We didn't seek him out. We certainly don't deserve Christ dying for us. But Jesus did in order to save his people from their sins. He did. But the reality is, the reality of the resurrection, what it means, what Christ being raised means, and what it means for us, it goes back to what we read from Daniel chapter 12. There will be a resurrection, a bodily resurrection of all people. Of all people, both those who have died in the Lord and those who have refused to believe in Jesus Christ. There will be a bodily resurrection. And some will face eternal life because they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. But some will face eternal punishment in hell because they have actively refused to believe in Christ as the Lord. They, like the Sadducees, they, like the Pharisees, actively sought to thwart him and refused to believe in who he was. They refused to believe in his resurrection, the power of God. And they will be raised. But their resurrection will lead to eternal punishment. God is gracious. And He holds out His promise. He holds out His promise to everyone that if you believe in His Son, and if you repent of your sins, He will save. And you will be raised again. And you will see Jesus Christ, your Savior, the first fruits of the resurrection. You will see Him face to face. He will wipe the tears from your eyes. He will take away your suffering, your pain, your misery. And you will be reunited with your loved ones who have gone on before you in the Lord. This is the promise of Scripture. This is the promise that is held out for you. It's the promise of God's grace. And all that God asks of any human being is that he or she repent and believe in Jesus Christ. This is the hope that we have. And our hope is based in the resurrection of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that by your power the Lord Jesus Christ broke free from the bonds of death and reigns in heaven today. We thank you that he is king. We thank you, O Lord, that he is our Lord, and that we, like him, will be raised. We ask, O Lord, that you would cause us now, with this knowledge, knowing that we will be raised, that you would cause us to walk in obedience, that we would love you all the more, And that our desire, O Lord, would be nothing more than to be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.